is Ed. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're here this morning celebrating something really extra special, which is the resurrection of Jesus. And we say, He is risen, and in response, we say, He is risen indeed. Amen. Um, because there's no better news than that for us. There is so much contained in Scripture. Um, there is so many uh, stories, and there is so much for God to communicate to us about who he is and who we are, but the Bible itself is very clear that there is no more important message, there's no more important event um, than, um, than the resurrection of Jesus and him conquering death for us to understand and for us to truly believe and trust in, which is why today is such a special day, the day that we celebrate that. Um, I want to talk a little bit this morning about why today matters so much and what it means for us, and um, I want to do that by looking at the book of Colossians, and if you have a Bible, you could turn there to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to spend a little bit of time in some verses there, but before we get to that, um, to give you a little bit of context, when Jesus arrived um, on the earth Um, God in flesh is what scripture tells us that he came sort of to the Jewish people um, and who had been looking forward to a Messiah to come, somebody to come and save them. Now they had their own very specific idea of what a Messiah was going to look like, just like we today all have our own ideas of what a savior would look like because we all have different problems and we all have different things that we think need to be fixed in the world, things that we think we need to be saved from. And it was no different at that time as well. Uh, the people, the Jewish people were, uh, when they heard of a Messiah who would come and save them, they thought that this would be someone who would come and save them from their enemies, uh, somebody who would come save them from their Roman oppressors, somebody who would come and save them from the corrupt and the controlling government, the world outside of their people, maybe someone who would come and save them from the wicked and the weak people who didn't do as good of a job as the Jewish people did, as following the rules and the law and uh, being clean and pure. They would look at those people and say, they're the problem with the world, and what we need is a way to be rescued from having to deal with them ever. Um, the enemies outside of their borders, uh, the people that wanted to attack them and take their land and have been doing so for so long, Um, They wanted security, and they wanted to not have to deal with that invasion. They wanted happy lives. They wanted um, abundance. People were waiting for a Savior who would come and do those things, and when Jesus came, they didn't believe that he was the Messiah because he didn't do any of those things. He didn't uh, go after all the people who weren't as holy. He didn't go after the government and the authorities. He didn't try to take a position of power. Um, he didn't try to defeat um, enemies and people that were on the outside that were looking to come in. Jesus didn't do any of the things that the people thought a Messiah should try to do. And because of that, they rejected him. Because of that, they said he must not be the Messiah. In fact, he's a false Messiah. He's claiming to be God. And so they killed him. What then would happen is Jesus himself would be resurrected. He would return to life. He would come back from death. And in doing that, he would make sense out of a whole lot of the stuff that he had said leading up until that point. So many things that had confused his disciples, so many things that didn't make sense about the kind of Messiah he was, all of a sudden made sense. Because now it was clear uh, to anyone who cared enough to pay attention, to try to put the pieces together, Um, people who actually interacted with him in the flesh when he came back and walked on the earth again, it was clear that what he had come to 
uh, defeat. What he had come to conquer was not one set of bad guys, was not one kind of behavior, was not one culture of people that he thought was the problem. It wasn't one set of rules or regulations. What he came to defeat was really the ultimate thing that is after us. The ultimate thing that we're all that we all live in dread of, the ultimate thing that we cannot escape, no matter what great leader comes and tries to buy us a little bit more time or a little bit more happiness. What he came to defeat was death itself, which is good news. It also made sense of the fact that he could be killed by his enemies and not actually be defeated by them. And so we know that after the resurrection happened, we know that a lot started to make sense to his disciples. A lot started to make sense to the people who had been following him, and it started to get really confused about things leading up until that point. The truth is that try as hard as we might, we cannot conquer death. We cannot overcome it. We cannot defeat it. No amount of technology gives us the ability to do that, although we are trying as hard as humanly possible to not only prolong our lives, but to find ways to defeat this thing called death. And there are people who believe that we can and believe that we will, and maybe even they will not see death if they can invent the right technology, if they can come up with the right way to get around this thing that's sort of chasing us all down. I think the question that we have to ask this morning is if Jesus did indeed rise from the dead and was resurrected, as he says, as eyewitnesses attest to, as we have numerous accounts of, then what does it mean for us? What does it mean for each and every one of us? There's something that we read about in Colossians, and um, Steve, I don't have my clicker, um, so could you go to the next verse? It's in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. This is a letter to the Colossian church from Paul and um, the, um, the Colossian people, I should say. And Paul says this to the people in the church there in Colossia. He says, if, you, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Can you go to the next slide, Steve? The very first verse here says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, and this matters more than anything else that we're going to talk about this morning, more than anything else in this passage, this matters the most. It's something that Paul assumes And it's something that is why we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus so much today. We celebrate his resurrection because what he told his followers and what he tells us is that because he was raised from the dead, because he was resurrected, then any who believe in him and who trust in him themselves are raised to life again. If then you have been raised with Christ, Paul is assuming that anyone in the church there who professes faith in Jesus, the first thing that we see here, and it's the most important, is that we too are raised with Christ. In fact, Paul doesn't say you will be raised with Christ. What he's saying here is that you have been raised with Christ if you believe in him and follow him, which is incredibly good news. What this says to us is that we've already defeated death, If we believe in Christ, we have already begun living something called eternal life. Oh, is it a Bible? Oh, a Bible's talking. All right. We should just listen to that. I think it's better. 
His voice is probably a lot better than mine. The good news about this, and it's something that is very important for us to understand this morning, is that if you put your faith in Jesus, then eternal life begins now. It doesn't begin later. It doesn't begin after your death. That you begin living eternal life. Uh, Paul says that to the church. He says, uh, you have already been raised with Christ. You have already, in a sense, been resurrected from death. You don't have to fear it anymore. You're now living a new life, a different life, and you are living that life because you've accepted and followed Jesus. If you're a believer here today, the moment that you came to faith, that you said, God, I trust that Jesus is who will save me, that I will not be justified by any of the good things I try to do or any of the accomplishments I have in this world, that I will not be saved and justified by by anything anyone else comes up with that they think is worth it, that they think will save me or them or anything, that will save our society, that if I trust that really the only way that I will have life is in Jesus himself, which is a lot of trust. It's a lot of trust to put in another person, right? It's a lot to trust in something someone else has done. It's a lot to trust that because of where they stand, that they're getting you in on their name, which is what Jesus promises to do. The good news of the gospel, we read about right here in the beginning of Colossians 3, is that you then, if you trust, have already been raised with Christ. Colossians tells us basically that we've already been resurrected with Jesus. If we put our faith in him, we die. In that moment, we die. And we are born again is where that term comes from, right then and there. Death will not touch you. It will not be the end of you. You have begun a new life that is eternal. And from that point on, the only certainty is taxes. which I probably shouldn't be reminding us about right now. Some of you are going, oh, shoot, that's coming up. You will experience physical death, but Scripture tells us that the sting has been taken out of it. And if you know anything about things that sting you, you know that that's all you care about those things, is that they can sting you. He goes on, Steve, if you go to the next one, and he says this then. He says, if you have been raised with Christ, then here's the good news. If you are a person in that position, then the good news is you are to seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You are to set your mind on things that are above, not things that are on the earth. So if you are, in fact, resurrected, oh, thank you, Ellie. My wife, Ellie, everybody. Big round of applause. Yes, thank you. There we, go. we started ending the worship sets that way, but it was kind of weird. So um, we don't say big round of applause anymore. Um, oh, wow, now I've got control again. This is great. I feel great. <sighs> Seek the things that are above. He encourages the church. Why would Paul encourage the church in this way? Why encourage a group of people that chapters before this, he had said, I admire your faith. You have a good faith. It's known from people all uh, across like the land, like, like other churches hear about you guys and how great you're doing and seeking to follow Jesus. You're good examples of disciples. You're a healthy church. I think you're great. And what he writes to them is he says this to them. He says, because you are people who have been raised with Christ, his challenge to them is this. Even those who it seems are doing well, he encourages them and says, seek the things that are above, 
which is where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Rather than setting our mind on things that are on earth, we are to set our mind on the things that are above. It means, what he says here, that what we are to do then is to fight this urge, this habit that is kind of in our bones and in our flesh, to keep living as though we are really a part of this world and this life more than any other. This changes how you live. But the urge that we have is to live as though the most important thing going on is this life right now, not this other life that he says we have already begun living. It's our tendency to take the things that we physically, tangibly experience every day in this life, our job, our families, our marriages, my car, my lawn, the next election. These are all the places where my mind goes when left to itself. My thoughts are prone to wander back each day to what? To the things of this life and of this world. And he says, you have been raised again to a new life already. And so because of that, allow your thoughts to drift back to the most important thing. And we read elsewhere in scripture that we are to fix our gaze on those things. Set your mind on those things, he says. Seek things that are above. Scripture often uses the language of of setting your eyes on something, fixing your gaze on something. Uh, And the reason for that is because the idea is where you fix your gaze and your eyes, that's where you're going to head. That's where you're going to go. The heart is often described as like where you already are. Uh, Your heart is the center of your being. So if your heart is set on something, then it means that's the most important thing to who you are as a person right now. And so what's going on in your heart matters a lot for the way your life is living in this moment. Where your eyes are fixed, where your eyes are set, says everything about where you're going next. It says everything about what you're focused on and what you're thinking about coming next. This is so difficult for us, but we know the truth of fixing our gaze. If you're in a boat and you're, on the, and you're on the ocean or you're on a body of water and you want to get to a certain spot, it is as simple as fixing your gaze and your eyes on that spot and aiming for it. When you, when you take your gaze off of it, when you lose sight of the objective on the horizon, then you can end up going anywhere. I remember once getting a, a text message from my wife a couple years ago and uh, like a year and a half ago, and it was a picture of my son's face, and he had a big hole right here and like a cut right here on his forehead, and I thought, "Uh uh-oh, that's not good, and uh, so I get a phone call from my son, and it turned out um, that he had had some kind of an accident at school, and so he called me, and he said, hey, dad, I'm on the way to the urgent care. They're going to put stitches in my forehead. I said, what happened? He said, I was on the playground, and uh, we were playing football, and I was going for the catch of a lifetime, is exactly how he put it. And he said, I was running, and I kept my eyes on the ball, and the good news is I caught it, but the bad news is um, I ran into the monkey bars right after I caught it, and uh, my glasses cut my forehead. Um, 
He said some of his friends were right there with him, helping him. Other friends ran away. Um, and uh, he said he knew it was serious when one of the kids cussed, and then that was probably an indication that something really serious had happened. Um, and then he said, some of my friends did come back, and uh, they said, we only ran away because we saw blood and we realized how bad it was. And then when we realized that you were okay, we came back, you know, um, which is great. It's really good. Um, and so he got some stitches, and uh, that was the injury for that three-month period of his life. Um, uh, a couple of times now, my son has been hit in the face with a baseball when we've been playing catch because I've so emphasized with him, put your eye on the ball, put your eye on the ball, put your eye on the ball, that he takes that literally. And we often joke that I've got two strikes against me right now because I've hit him twice now in the head with a ball that he kept his eye on very well and uh, didn't get the glove up in time, but a third strike and we're done playing catch and I guess I lose one of my kids or something. They take him away from me. The, the, the thing that we've taught him again and again and again is to keep your eye fixed on this thing. And those of you who have been in similar situations know, like, uh, if you're committed, then you're going to block out everything else that there is, right? You fix your gaze on the most important thing in your life, and everything else falls into the background. It doesn't mean that everything else isn't important. It doesn't mean that everything else doesn't matter. It just means that you can only fix your gaze on one thing at a time. Paul's encouragement to the church is this. The good news is because of the resurrection of Jesus, you too have been raised to new life. And because you've been raised to new life, does it not make sense that you would fix your eyes on that life and that kingdom rather than fix your eyes on things of the world, on earthly things? That you would find a way to not be drifted, not drift away from the destination that you want to go to. He's not saying to people, you're going to lose your faith, your salvation. You're going to lose uh, this goal of eternal life. He's saying to them, you have it already now. You have eternal life now. So live in that and enjoy that and focus on that. You get the freedom of being the people who don't have to be completely and totally dependent on and invested in only the things that are happening right here and right now. That should give us the ability to just, you know, step back, relax, even chill out a little bit as things happen because we have something else. He goes on and he says this. I'm going to skip this for a second. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Thanks, Steve. Why do we do this? He says, because you have died. Well, that's great news, right? Because your life has been hidden with Christ and God. The reason why we do this, he says, is because your old life was gone. It is gone when you became resurrected. That's a good thing, but it's also a hard thing. It's something that we have to be really clear on. Everything that you think is important um, in this life you have to ask yourself the question, is that actually the life that I died to? The life where all I was invested in was what was happening here and now? Because he's explaining to people, to us, exactly where they stand with things. I think we go about these lives of ours, and we get so wrapped up in all of the things that are happening, all the details of them. And it's so easy for us to lose sight of what matters the most because we're caught up in the things we're trying to accomplish, the things that we're trying to do. This is one of the earliest video recordings that we have. It's called, um, uh, 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 it's a drive down Market Street in San Francisco. 
and this was taken just a couple of weeks before the San Francisco earthquake, I think in 1906. They've like studied it quite a bit to try to figure out exactly when it was taken. It's a really fascinating video clip because it's like 11 minutes long and it's just them driving all the way down the street and you get to see all these people and all these things happening. But when I watch clips like this, when I watch things like this, and I see the, the busyness that, that of, of people's lives, I see the things that people are engaged in, and I, and I recognize that no one in this video is alive today. No one in this video is alive any longer. That all the things that people were busy with, all the things that people were uh, focused on, that were working on, how many of those things are things that would ultimately perish How many of those important, urgent, necessary things that we have to get done, that we have to take care of, are things that would fade into the background of time, things that we would not know about later? How much of life ends up being like this? You see, this isn't the way our world tells us that it works. Our world tells us that, that we are the most important thing ever and that this time in our world and our life is the most important time in our world and our life ever. That our generation, that the job that we're doing, that the problems that we're facing, that all of these things are the most important things that we could possibly focus our entire life on right now. When in reality... So many of these things are things that will fade away, that will wither away into time, into the past. The question is, have we uh, died to a life and there is a new one that we now get to pick up and live in the power of Jesus, but we're still so focused and wrapped up in these urgent things that we think have to happen, these things that we get consumed by because people around us who don't have a new life might be consumed by. That instead, what we can do is we can stop, take a break. We can kind of zoom out a little bit. We can take a deep breath. And instead of believing you are the most important person, what you're doing is the most important thing, your work is the most important work anyone's ever going to do, if you fail... If you take a day off, if you slow down, things are going to fall apart. It's going to be terrible. Maybe just relax a little bit and have some perspective. You're no longer competing for a prize. The best news of all is that you have nothing to prove. You have nothing to prove now. Because the good news, he says, is that your life is hidden with Christ in God. Hidden with Christ? Like, uh, at first when I read that, I thought that's kind of a cool idea. The idea that, like, nothing I do, like, I'm really going to see it. People aren't going to see it. Maybe it's going to be in secret. No, that's not what it's talking about. When it's talking about hidden, if you translate this word, it basically is just when you hide something to preserve it, right? If you have something really valuable and you want to keep it safe and you want to keep it secure, you hide it. You put it in the safe deposit box. And that's the way that you know, or under your mattress or in a hole in your backyard or whatever you choose to do, that's fine. I'm sure that'll work. But when you hide things away, it's because they're so important that you want to make sure that they will be there tomorrow. You see, so much of all this stuff that we get wrapped up in and that we do and that we focus on, so much of the stuff that we get so stressed out and anxious about that's going on in our world, it's because we don't actually really feel secure with our lives themselves. And the good news that Paul says is that because you have been resurrected in new life, your life has been hidden with Christ. Christ has taken you, he has placed you somewhere secure, and said, now 
you don't have to prove anything anymore. All that matters, the most important thing that matters in who you are and the life that you will live has been accomplished on the cross and through the resurrection for you. And now everything else is just like icing on the top. But you don't need to prove anything anymore. We all live our lives going like, I've got to accomplish some things. I've got to do some things. I've got to make a mark. If nothing else, I need to do it for myself to know that my existence actually mattered and was worth it. And the good news of the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus is uh, the most important thing that can ever be accomplished in your life has been accomplished through Jesus. All we must do is believe and trust that. How hard is that though, right? If you've heard the gospel before and you go, I don't really understand how this whole thing is based on just believing and trusting, just saying you agree with the thing and then that's it. Like, how does that work? How do you know who really agrees and who doesn't, who really believes and who doesn't? Well, it's actually rather simple. It's incredibly hard to trust that what someone else has done is what will save you. To release and let go of having to prove yourself in the way that you live your life. But how crazy is the world that we're living in because everyone is just freaking out all the time trying to prove themselves and and accomplish things in life and trying desperately to make the world what they think it needs to be because this is the only chance they're going to get to be happy, right? Imagine if we didn't have to deal with that pressure, what this world could actually be like and the way that we could actually live. The good news, says Paul, is that your life is hidden with Christ He is protecting it. He is keeping it from anything that will threaten it. And this is such incredibly good news. The great news about Easter, the great news about the resurrection, is that we look ahead to glory, and yet we also can experience some of that glory now. When Christ, who is your life, appears, and he will appear again in the flesh, then you also will appear with him in glory. All the glory that we have to look forward to, we have because of Christ and what he has done. So we fix our eyes on that, on what is to come. Not because we're escapists, not because we don't care about this life and this world that we're living in. It's not for that reason. It's because we know that this world and this life is not where we're going to accomplish something that's going to actually change things for us. That we are justified by what happens here, by what we accomplish here, by the inventions that we make and the things that we achieve. You see, when you know that you don't have to prove something, you're now free to love your family without needing something from them in order to justify your existence. Aren't the best parents the ones that don't need their kids to turn out a specific way so that they can actually love them freely without expectation? Aren't the best employees people who can work the hardest and be devoted to what you're doing, not with their own selfish ambitions because they need a certain reputation, they need people to see how good they are at doing something, but they actually care about what you're accomplishing together? Aren't the best friends the people who can be there for you without desperately needing to be the most important thing in your life all the time? When you remove our need to prove things in all these areas of our lives, when you remove uh, the need that we might have for this life to be what matters and justifies us, then you're free. You're free to actually enjoy the good gifts that God gives us in the right perspective. The good news of the resurrection it is, it is not just for people, for people. Well, the question that we ask is ultimately this. What life am I living? 
We can't not ask this question. We have to ask this question because this is the encouragement that is being given to the church. Where is your gaze fixed? Where is it set? Are you, have you been resurrected um, with Christ and yet you're still living an old life? If so, don't. There you go. Don't. And if you're someone who's never chosen to trust in Jesus, then when we talk about the resurrection, we talk about something that actually happened, something that was proven. We talk about something that there were eyewitness accounts of by people who were pretty self-deprecating of themselves in the eyewitness accounts. That the people who gave us those eyewitness accounts ultimately gave their lives. And lots of people give their lives. Lots of people martyr themselves for something that they don't have personal experience of. But Christianity is the only faith that actually the people that pass the stories along, the narratives along, are the very people who themselves were crucified for these things. Why did the tomb uh, stone get rolled away? Couldn't Jesus pass through it if he wanted to? Yes, he could have. Why did the, the clothes have to be laid down there the way that they were? Couldn't they have just not been there at all? Yes, of course they didn't need to be. Why did all of these things happen the way they did? So that the people who witnessed it would see what happened. So that they would give testimony to what had happened. So that they could share with others the, the facts and the evidence and the truth of what happened. Because Christ knew that our hope would need to be in what we could verify and what we could know was actually true. Not just some legend or some fairy tale or some story that was written down that was detached from any real experience. If you haven't chosen to follow Jesus, then know that this thing that we talk about, the resurrection, is based on actual facts of things that have happened. And the question then is, if he has been resurrected from the dead and he says, I offer that new life to you, then have you received that? Because you can. The resurrection is for people who are actually dead. It is not for people who are just not doing very well. The resurrection is for those who have died to this life and accept that the only hope can come in the life that that Jesus brings with us eternally. Forgiveness is for people who are actually sinners. The grace of God is for people who are a true mess. Jesus comes and offers these things to everyone, not just some, not just church people, not just people who behave a certain kind of a way. He offers them to everyone. The good news about Easter and about resurrection is that because he has been risen, we ourselves are also risen with him. I think the question is, are we living that new life, that eternal life now, or are we waiting for something? Are we waiting and trying to focus on as much of this life as we can get, and then we plan on starting eternal life later? Because that, it seems, would be a huge mistake. Let's pray. Father,